Good morning, church. Today uh, we are going to continue the what has come to be known as the supplemental sermon series through the book of James. This is now the sixth sixth sermon on James, and we have finally made it to chapter two. Um, as we've seen, James' epistle is similar to that of, of an iceberg. You're able to easily see uh, what's above the surface when you glance at it, but if you, if you stop and take the time to look beneath the surface, the true depth of James' teaching uh, we see goes very, very deep. And in chapter 2 of his epistle, we'll see that James continues to build upon the three aspects of true religion that we looked at last time, and he will continue to build on each one of these in its own unique way as he goes throughout the rest of his book. Uh, be, care, be sure to, be, to pay careful attention today to the uh, Old Testament reading, which will be Leviticus 19, 9 through 18. This scripture is directly referred to by James in today's passage. And so as we begin today, we'll start with our Old Testament reading, Leviticus 19, 9 through 18, followed by our New Testament reading, which will also be our sermon text. James 2, verses 1 through 13. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the falling grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor. And for the sojourner, I am the Lord, your God. Verse 11, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor to rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all the night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Moving now to our New Testament text, James 2, 1 through 13. Here again, the reading of God's most holy word. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you go stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you then not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you 
and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless the teaching and preaching of your word today. May the words that James has for us, Father, be ones that go forward. May we hear them. May we hear the true extent of your message. May it go into the depths of our hearts, Father, that we may take these things and apply these things. We are thankful, Father, for your word. We are thankful for your church. We are thankful, Lord, for this day to worship and honor you with our minds and our hearts, Father. Be with us now. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Church, I'd assume that this uh, portion of James about favoritism is a section of Scripture that most of you are familiar with. I know that James's message was very familiar to me prior to starting the sermon series, uh, but I've been both amazed and extremely blessed by digging deeper into this epistle. There's a famous quote about the Bible that says that Scripture is like a large body of water, broad and deep, shallow enough for the lamb to go wading, but deep enough for the elephant to swim. This seems to be exceptionally true for the book of James. The title of today's sermon is Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. This title may seem a bit strange for a portion of scripture that is typically under titles such as Favoritism Forbidden or The Sin of Partiality. But the more I studied the thought, context, and flow of James, the more I saw how deep James's teaching was really going. And I came to realize that the issue of favoritism was only the surface teaching of James. Yes, it is true that James is teaching about not showing favoritism toward others, but we have to connect James's flow of thought in chapter 1 and how he concludes his teaching on favoritism uh, later in chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. In order to fully grasp the depth of what James wants us to, the readers need to understand what James is saying in connection to all the other words that he has throughout his book come to learn over and over again in my study of James that to truly capture the depth of his teaching, I have to understand the context and flow of thought. I think very often people will parcel out James. It's a very typical book to do that into these smaller sections. And by doing so, they don't fully catch the depth or the breadth of what James intends for his audience when read in its totality. So let's again take just a moment to recap chapter 1 to best set the stage for what James has to say in chapter 2. We will not always recap in such depths each time we have a sermon on James, but I do think it's very important as we make this transition that we understand what James says in chapter 1 and how those words of chapter 1 will connect to chapter 2. So in briefly recapping James 1, we remember the first 18 verses of chapter 1 were all connected under one section of the theme, How We the Church Are to Face Trials. In verses 2 through 4, we saw that James was teaching us how we are to, quote, consider it joy when we face trials of various kinds. 
Here, James provided for the church the proper worldview perspective that we should adopt in the midst of our trials and tribulations as we sojourn on this earth. In verses 5 through 8, James continued beyond just the perspective that Christians should, quote, consider when facing trials, and began to go deeper into explaining the practical applications of how believers can attain such a perspective, which was through wisdom, more specifically the wisdom that came from God. But James tells the reader that to ask for such wisdom and then respond in doubt meant that the asker was like a, quote, wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, verses 6 through 7. Next, we saw that James breaks down verses 9 through 18 into three different sections. In verses 9 through 12, James gave a more direct and specific example of the type of trial that many in the church at that time were enduring. In these verses, James contrasts and explains the differences between the, quote, rich and the, quote, poor of that time, warning the rich while encouraging the poor. We should make special note of this particular teaching, as James will again visit the concept of rich and poor in our sermon text today, further elaborating on and juxtaposing the two types of individuals. In verses 13 through 15 of chapter 1, James gave clarification of the topic of temptations that believers often face in the midst of their trials, explaining that sin is what tempts us during trying times, not the Lord. Thus, James begins to merge his complete theme into focusing on the need to have a right heart before God. And by having a right heart toward God, this will then allow us to endure the trials of the time and also allows us to receive the wisdom that we need in order to endure these trials. This focus of a right heart is very important to keep in mind as we merge not only into chapter 2, but the remainder of James's book. Next, in verses 6, 16 through 18, James works towards a conclusion of the section on facing trials as he gave his audience theological insight into the role of God in the midst of his people's trials and tribulations in this life. Encouraging the people of God to remain positive and optimistic in the midst of their hardships, because that which is seen... Their trials, that which they saw with their eyes in front of them, their trials, is not what truly was, namely the kingdom of God, the spiritual reality. Then in James 1, 19 through 25, after completing a section on, quote, how believers are to face trials, James continued to build upon the themes of practical wisdom as he further directed and exhorted God's people on how the people of God are to respond in light of what he taught in verses 2 through 18. In fact, this is how the remainder of the entire book should be interpreted in, in, in light of verses 2 through 18. In short, in concluding this section, the people of God were to be quick to listen, primarily to the word of God, slow to speak, primarily in their response to God, and slow to become angry, primarily at the will of God in their lives. Lastly, in the final two verses of chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, James lists three things that the believer, the true believer, in their true religion should exhibit in his or her life as they humbly serve their creator. They were to, one, control one's tongue, two, to visit widows and orphans in their afflictions, and three, to keep oneself from being unstained from the world. Thus, in the final verses of James 1, a picture is painted for us of what a true believer will practically look like when his or her heart has been transformed by the power of Christ and through the workings of the Holy Spirit. 
Thus we enter chapter 2 with James portraying to his audience what a genuine believer will look like when they are truly walking with Christ. But James opens up chapter 2 giving us the reader insight into the state of his direct audience. Clearly the people of James, the people that James was directly writing to, were not doing so great in their living out of that quote, true religion. This true religion was just described in chapter 1, and these people instead seem to have favoritism as a major issue. James begins in verse 1 of chapter 2 with the hypothetical story of a wealthy man who walked into the assembly of the people. So let's look now more closely at this story in chapter 2 as we look more directly at verses 1 through 7. James precedes in verse 1 this hypothetical story with the phrase, my brothers. You'll remember that James uses a similar phrase in introducing chapter 1 when he states in chapter 1-2, consider it joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Thus chapter 2 marks the beginning of a new concept that is being built upon James's first concept in chapter 1. And the story told in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, has one very clear and central purpose, to condemn any practice of favoritism within the church. The word favoritism translates a very rare Greek word that is only used by the New Testament. It connotes the treatment of any person on the basis of any type of external consideration, whether it be race, nationality, wealth, education, manner of dress, etc., Such type of favoritism had no place amongst the people of God. And in verse 2, James describes a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing coming into the assembly of the people. Can you see it, church? Such a person walking into the midst of us? It should not be too difficult for us to relate to this type of individual that James is describing. This person would, by the world standard, have been very glorious, exceeding in looks, wealth, power, and status, For this is what the gold ring and the fine clothes would have implied of this hypothetical man. James contrasts this high-ranking and wealthy individual with that of a poor man who was in shabby clothes who also comes in and enters the assembly. This word shabby indicates that this man, according to the world, was everything opposite of the first wealthy man that was being described. In James' hypothetical story, Special attention and preferential seating is given to the wealthy man, but only standing room or an inferior seat on the floor was afforded to this poor man. Church, again, it's not too difficult to visualize these two men, right? This hypothetical story transcends culture and time. Thousands of years ago, as James was visualizing this, we even today can see these two same types of people. Perhaps we might even be picturing in our minds each of these two individuals. This story is also so relatable because all of us, at one time or another, can identify with a time in our lives that we have either given preferential treatment to another based on appearance or status, or were denied preferential treatment based on appearance or status. For the world has a very clear hierarchy of importance based on things such as wealth, power, and authority. And I know we have all done or experienced favoritism at one time or another because it's part of our fallen nature to quickly make judgments about those around us. It is how we identify who we want our friends to be. 
It's how we impress our employers. It is how, according to the world's standards, we see how much value, how much value another person has. At its core, favoritism is the act of looking at how someone else can best serve our own needs, wants, and desires. In other words, favoritism is completely self-serving at its core. That's exactly what James's whole point was. We do this so naturally and so consistently that we fail to even look at what we're doing. It's something so familiar to all of us, yet James has some very hard words when the people of God act in this preferential manner. Look at James's words in verse 4, where he states, quote, Have you then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James takes this very relatable story and situation that he knew his audience would quickly identify with so that he could show them how evil, how evil, the word that is used is evil, these nonchalant thoughts and actions truly were. This example James gives is quite profound because James is again teaching on multiple levels. James is given the common teaching of wisdom, showing that favoritism is not good, it's bad in order to bring about an even even deeper teaching on the heart. Remember in chapter 1, verse 19, when James said that believers ought to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger? You should remember it if you were here for uh, that message, which was a few times ago. There was a surface application to listening carefully, speaking carefully, and controlling one's anger. That application was good. All people should practice that. It was good practice. It was general wisdom. But James had a much deeper application for the people of God. And that application was for the people of God were to be quick to hear God's word, slow to respond to the word of God, and not to become embittered and angry with the ways of God. Remember also in chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, where James gives the basic instructions for, quote, true religion, which he summarized in three commands to control one's tongue, to visit widows and orphans in their afflictions, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. These three commands on the surface seem like relatively simple and basic teachings. But oh, the depths that James is truly going to when applying these truths to believers. We spent an entire sermon last time on James just on those two verses. Favoritism is bad, brothers and sisters. It should not take very much for us to be convinced about that. Just ask the kid that was too small how it felt to be chosen last to play on a team. Or ask someone who was made fun of because their clothes were not as nice as everyone else's. Even the world, even the world can see that favoritism is wrong. But James was not talking to the world. James was talking to the people of God as they lived out being the temple of God on this earth. And here is where James's message starts to become so profound. In verse 5, James captures his reader's attention by beginning with the statement, Hear this, my beloved brothers. James was being both intensely direct, yet loving in his instruction. And so this phrase could be better translated as, You must hear this. You must hear this, my very loved and dear brothers and sisters. 
Because in verses 5 through 7, James goes on to explain why this preferential judgment of others was so very wrong, having no place in the church of God. James does this by asking his readers three questions, each of which anticipated an affirmative answer. James was very careful to instruct his audience as to why this simple act of favoritism was so, in James's words, evil. First, James says, quote, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Second, James says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And third, James says, Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Here again, we see James using this Poseidian effect, which he's done so much already in his book and will continue to do throughout his book, where he turns priorities completely upside down. And by doing so, James is revealing the true reality of the kingdom of God. In other words, as we go through James' church, There's this constant contrast between the ways of this world and the ways of God's kingdom, between the physical reality that we see and the spiritual reality that exists in front of us. That which the world looks upon as being good, namely the wealthy man in fine clothing, is in fact the one thing that brought evil upon God's people and brought blaspheming upon the name of God. This is why Jesus... Jesus, throughout the Gospels, spent so much time teaching about the true reality of his spiritual kingdom, for it was in direct opposition and in contrast to the kingdoms of this world. You see, brothers and sisters, when we make judgments with our physical eyes, as we can all see right now, neglecting to see with our spiritual eyes, we miss everything. We miss everything. Pastor Joe has been going through a sermon series recently about the temple of God. I trust all of you have that in your mind. This has been the sermon series we've went through for quite a few weeks now. And one of the points that he consistently makes is how glorious the church is and how glorious this church is. But through the eyes of the world, when the world comes in and looks upon this humble place, we're just a bunch of weird people meeting in what is now clarified as a non-insulated building (laughs) for reasons that appear to the world to be utterly foolish. If you think about it, brothers and sisters, looking upon this, as, as Pastor Joe said, that it makes me reflect so much. I know that I've struggled with that before. It seems so small, so humble, a little church in Hemet of all places in this small building. But that's because we're not looking with our spiritual eyes. And not only has the series that Pastor Joe, that he's been going through, been bringing that to light, here also James is bringing that to light. This is what James wants us to understand. The world gives preference to those who are wealthy and powerful and attractive. But the church, the church is to give equal treatment to all of its members. For we are all, brothers and sisters, royalty in the kingdom of God. If we judge merely with our physical eyes, church, look at what we lose. Look at what we lose. What a tragedy it is when other brothers and sisters use their physical eyes only when looking for a church. Think about the glorious congregations that they would overlook should they not see with their spiritual eyes. 
What a tragedy it is when a young person uses only his or her physical eyes when looking for a spouse. And what a tragedy it is when we judge our fellow brothers and sisters using our physical eyes only and with the standards defined by this world. For it is what is in the heart that makes one rich, according to Scripture. It is what is in the heart that makes one holy. And it is in the heart that the Spirit of God dwells, giving life and light unto the eternal things of God. As James had previously explained to us in chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, the poor brother is blessed, while the rich man will wither and pass away. For the rich man lived for the kingdoms of this world. But the poor man, the poor man was royalty in the kingdom of God. Do you see it, church? This amazing Poseidian teaching of James? I trust that you do. We will see it with the church of God. We see it in God's holy temple. And here in James, we're instructed to see it within the individual people of God. We're to see it within each and every one of us who are part of the kingdom of God. Look around, brothers and sisters, in this humble room with these humble people, these relationships that are in this room. These are eternal. Eternity is being built in this very room, this very humble place. For we are the church of God. We are the temple of God. How glorious that is. And we must be so very careful not to miss the value of the church, not to miss the value that God has placed on this humble place with these humble people and not miss specifically the value of one another as fellow heirs in Christ. And so in verse 8, James continues his biblical teachings on why favoritism was in fact so very wrong. Here James goes into even, even further depths as he reveals that the real issue beneath favoritism was actually a lack of love for our neighbor. James reminds his readers of God's command God's very familiar command, quote, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This command was given by God to Israel at the beginning of her existence as a nation. It comes from Leviticus 19.18, quoted other places in the Old Testament as well. And this was also the Old Testament passage that was read at the beginning of the message today. This passage goes into great detail about all of the intricacies for how, how Israel was to treat its neighbors. And at the core of all these specific commands in Leviticus 19, the commands of leaving leftovers from the harvest, not stealing, not lying, not slandering, not oppressing, not bearing a grudge, all of this was summed up in a single commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so here James 2 is connecting the need to not show favoritism to this list, saying if you follow this, quote, royal law that he says, you indeed would not show favoritism in the midst of you. We know that this is the royal law, the law above all laws, for Christ himself said so in Mark 12, 31, and Matthew twenty two thirty nine, where Jesus summarized all of the law into two simple commandments, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, James tells us that if we fail to love our neighbors ourselves, through the judgments of favoritism, we have failed to keep this law. We become lawbreakers. In other words, we are sinners. We are transgressors. Verse 11 quotes directly 
from the Ten Commandments as James makes clear that the act of showing partiality to others is on par with breaking God's moral law. And to break God's moral law is an act that we are all guilty of. We are all guilty of breaking God's commandments. I think that's James, James's point in this section. We're all guilty of showing favoritism or partiality at one time or another. And it, it's become more and more perplexing to me, brothers and sisters, of how many people see James as being overly legalistic. As I read through James, as I study James, I see that he just continuously addresses the heart and the need to have a right heart before God. I constantly see grace and mercy as the themes displaying our need for the gospel. Over and over again, I see it in James. That's why I think people need to be careful to study James in depth because it can look very legalistic. But the whole point is to show our need for mercy. And I think that's exceptional, especially true in chapter 2. Verses 1 through 13. We're all guilty of breaking God's law. We all need grace. But James is not calling us to perfection in this area. He is calling us to be humble, gracious, loving, and forgiving with one another. And what example does James use to display this concept most clearly? He uses the example of God himself and how God will judge us. He tells us that we are to act as those who will be judged under the, quote, law of liberty. This phrase, law of liberty, should sound familiar to us because James discussed this phrase only a few verses ago in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Here James said, starting in verse 22, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he looks like. Verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Here James told us that by actually living out this law of liberty, we would be blessed. We would be blessed. And what is this law of liberty? It is the freedom that comes from living under the gracious forgiveness through the blood of Christ. For Christ loves us, and so we love him. Christ forgave us, and so we must forgive others. We must learn to view others as Christ views them. This is why James makes this point to show that there is no place to make judgments on others outside of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. It is not our place to put value on another another person when they are within the kingdom of God. Because to show others, because to judge others, and to show no mercy, James tells us, is to receive judgment without mercy. Listen to Jesus' parable on this exact manner. It's somewhat of a larger portion of Scripture, but I think it's a very good example and a very necessary example to help bring to light exactly what James wants us to see. This is from Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And this is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. I want to read that now. Starting in verse 21, we're given a little bit of context into what was going on before Jesus gave this parable. And so on verse 21, it says, Then Peter came up and said to him, referring to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I must forgive him. These are Peter's words to Christ. Sounds like Peter had someone in mind that he was struggling to forgive, right? 
What's the limit? How many times do I have to do it? And so Peter says, as many as seven times, right? I have a brother. He's a real knucklehead. He's hard, to, he's hard to deal with. You don't understand, Jesus. This is one of those people that, you know, are personality types. They don't match. We have a hard time being in the same room. How often do I need to forgive this person? Seems like he keeps on sinning against me. Jesus said to him, said to Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy Seven times, or in other translations, 77 times seven times. In other words, there is no limit, right? There is no limit. Jesus says, do not judge your brother based even on his sin against you, so long as he searches out true forgiveness in the matter. Forgive your brother is what Jesus is saying, Peter, as he begins this story. And so here now is the story, verse 23. Therefore, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and for payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. In other words, forgive me and I will pay you everything. Give me time. Be gracious. Verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants underneath him who owed him a hundred denarii, right? Couple bucks. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe me. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. Sounds familiar, right? Have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went on and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, you evil servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do with every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Those are heavy words at the end of that story. That's a, it's an amazing story. But verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do with every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Mercy triumphs over judgment, brothers and sisters. We must not show favoritism to others who are truly a part of the kingdom of God. The story makes that clear. Because to show favoritism to those in our midst is to become judges with evil thoughts. And we then fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. Those who have truly been saved will give evidence of the merciful character of God who saved them. They will resemble Christ. That is what is being shown in the story that was read, the parable. And so we must show mercy. Because if we show mercy and truly love others, favoritism of any type will not exist amongst us. It will not exist amongst us. And so, as I begin to move towards a closing of this of this sermon today. I want to offer you a few points of reflective application that come from James 2, verses 1 through 13. 
James makes it very clear that at the core of favoritism is in fact a heart issue. It is a judgment of our neighbor. It is a failure to love our neighbor as ourselves and thus a violation of God's moral law. And so we must be very careful to not fall into this sin that James describes for us in the passage today. In fact, it is the same sin that we could fall into that was uh, read in the parable, the parable of the servant. And we can do this by being careful to not do, to not do three primary things. Number one, number one, we must not judge others based on appearance or status. We must not judge others based on appearance or status. We have to work hard to ensure that favoritism and partiality have no place in our congregation or individual lives. This is a sin that we are directly called to work against. To judge another based on appearance or status is, in James's words, evil. For it works only to serve our own interests and our own selfish ambitions. But we have to understand the parameter of James's judgment. We have to keep in mind here, I think that it's, it's important to make a point of clarification, that James is not saying that we are to never make judgments, right? Because we could err on that side as well. We could just say, that's not my business. Whatever I see, that, that's not me. I don't want to judge. James is not saying that we should never make judgments. He is saying that we must not ever make judgments based on one's appearance or status, right? We should never make a judgment based on what will, what will best serve us. There's a time to judge a brother or sister in Christ, but that is only defined by Scripture. There's a time to make judgments when one displays that they are not a genuine brother or sister in Christ. Scripture outlines these things. But if a true brother or sister in Christ falls into sin, we then are actually commanded to make judgments on that individual and to save their souls, Scripture says. But this, again, is only according to the Scriptures. The Scriptures are our true guide to who Uh, we are and how we are to act. And we are all different in so many different ways. And so as we live out as the people of God, we're all different. Different personalities, race, gender, which is only male and female, by the way, just to clarify. Occupation, education, many others, right? There's differences all amongst us. Yet at our core is Christ. We must love one another, embrace the many differences that we all have, so long as we are united in the true teachings and church of Christ. So we cannot judge based on the appearance or status of another. There's no other institution on the face of this planet, brothers and sisters, that that would bring this diversity of people into a room, right? we're, We're just so different in so many different areas. And so we have to see what James is saying. We have, to, we have to be careful to not put judgments on that. We have to see with our spiritual eyes. And that brings us to our second point. We must, we must maintain spiritual eyes in viewing others, verses 5 through 7. We must maintain spiritual eyes in viewing others. If we look through our physical eyes only, we will miss the true depth and beauty found in others. We must learn, church, to see the heart. We have to learn. This is is a skill that takes great work. This is what James calls us to do. We must learn to look with our spiritual eyes, seeing the value that God has bestowed upon his people. Look again at our building, this humble building that we're in, and the people around us, all of us in our humble positions, living our humble lives, 
If we use our physical eyes only, what will we see? What will we see? But through our spiritual eyes, a magnificent kingdom of royal priests becomes visible. The temple of God itself becomes visible. And so, brothers and sisters, learn to live this life through a spiritual lens. Learn to look at your fellow churchmen through a spiritual lens. For in the church, we engage in royal and eternal relationships. This brings us now to point number three. Point number three, verses eight through 13. We must judge others as we will be judged and forgive others as we have been forgiven. This really is James' most central, important point in this section of Scripture. That we do not judge others, lest we too be judged. We must love our neighbors as ourselves, which comes from a right heart before God. If we don't learn to cultivate our own heart, if we don't learn to see our own needs for forgiveness, we'll have a hard time forgiving others. Have you, have you noticed that, church? That when you realize how much you've been forgiven, it's a whole lot easier to forgive others when you realize that you're not as awesome as you thought you once were, right? James is ultimately telling us that we must live through a transformed heart in loving others. Church, maybe you've been hearing this message today and you've been thinking to yourself, all right, I've got this. Whenever a new person comes into the church, I'm the first person to go up and introduce myself. You've got favoritism ironed out, right? That's you. And if that is that, the type of person that you are, to always go and introduce yourself first, I say to you, that's a little bit too much extroversion for me personally, and I'm glad that you're forcing it upon the new people visiting our church. But obviously, I'm, I'm kidding, kind of. Maybe you don't judge people. Maybe you are good at that, right? In all seriousness. Maybe, maybe you're just really good at seeing that. You, you, you've worked through that. And, and what I say to you is that's a very good thing. This is a good thing. It's a good skill, right? Churches need good extroverts to go out and to, and to do that, right? But some questions that we all have to ask ourselves. Do you judge your spouse when they make a mistake? Do, do you hold things against them because they wronged you? Right? Do you harbor frustrations in your heart because they didn't ask for forgiveness fast enough? Are you overly critical of those who are not as disciplined as you in the faith? Do you look down on others who are perhaps less spiritual than you? Are you ever too harsh on your children when they struggle to obey? Because it's this, this that James is getting at. It's our hearts, brothers and sisters. And James says our hearts need to be transformed. If our hearts are not transformed, we won't be able to do any of these things that he's outlining here. What is the whole point of all the commands that James gives us? The whole point is we cannot do them outside of Christ. And so we must always keep before us the question, are we judging others the way that Christ judges us? Think about the judgment that we place on others around us. Family, friends, spouses, brothers and sisters in Christ. Is that how we would want to be judged? We know how much we mess up, right? I know how much I mess up. Are we looking at others with the same grace that we know that Christ is giving us? Are we forgiving others as Christ has forgiven us? Or have we forgotten that we were once children of wrath without hope under God's righteous judgment? For mercy, James tells us, triumphs over judgment. 
That's the title of the message today, and that's why it's the title of message today. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We do not want to be like the master in the parable who, after being forgiven much, failed to forgive his own servant. We've got to have a tender heart towards one another. We have to learn to be more patient and forgiving. This Christian faith is hard, right, brothers and sisters? This is not easy. We like to act like it is. We like to act that it's not hard to do these things. It's very difficult. James reminds us of that. So we have to learn to be gracious with one another. We're all so different and at different places in our walks and our journey with Christ. So we have to learn to place mercy above judgment. This is what we are called to do by James. But to do this, we must watch our hearts. We have to carefully watch our hearts. Cultivating them daily to love others as we love ourselves. We must learn to see this life and others through the lens of spiritual eyes. For in doing so, we will see the kingdom of God and the beauty of his people. As we conclude, I want to share with you one final scripture that just kept coming to my mind as I, as I wrote this sermon. It was just this small section of scripture, and I think it will help solidify much of what James taught us today and help encourage us as we all continue on sojourning through this life. It's Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. And it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, referring to the spiritual realm, right? The author of Hebrews is, is telling us there's a spiritual realm that exists. All the greats are around. They're there. They're with us. The spiritual realm is, is here and it's near to us. And as they all are around, they gather around, we're surrounded by them, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Learn to see this life through a spiritual lens, believers. It is the hardest thing that we will ever do in this life, to train our eyes to see through a spiritual lens. And it's the only thing that will allow us to see the true reality of the spiritual realm where Christ is seated and our salvation is secured. And it is what will allow us to see our brothers and sisters in Christ for who they truly are, a royal priesthood and the true temple of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you for Christ. May favoritism, Lord, not have a place amongst us. Most importantly, Father, help us to understand the true teaching underneath all of this, that we would not judge. Help us to not judge, Father. Help us to have tender and forgiving hearts, for this is what you call us to do, to forgive others as we have been forgiven. It is how you have taught us to be, how you've taught us to pray, the basis of our prayers, Father. So help us to do that, to apply that. Help us to cultivate our hearts if there is unforgiveness in our hearts, Lord. May we deal with that even today, Father, making sure that those things are right as we stand before you. We are thankful, Lord, for your word and for what James teaches us today. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.